The sermon text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 12 through 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. And there is no Old Testament reading for today, uh, for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, saying, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. But if, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, let me read that once more. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says that all things are put in subjection, It is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So far the reading of God's most holy word, and our prayer is that the Lord would bless the preaching of it now and help us to apply it to our lives today. I've selected this passage for today, assuming that you are familiar with the story of Christ's crucifixion, His death, His burial, and resurrection, as recorded for us in the pages of Holy Scripture, particularly in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus the Christ was crucified, He died, He was buried, and on the third day, He rose from the grave. And if you wish to read about these things, which would, by the way, be a wonderful thing to do on this Lord's Day I would encourage you to go to the end of any of the four Gospels to find an account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Matthew chapters 27 and 28, Mark 15 and 16, Luke 23 and 24, and John chapters 19 through 21. They all testify to the truth that Jesus the Christ was crucified, that He died and that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day. I've selected this passage for today, assuming that you are familiar with the story. Uh, for this passage, that is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28, which we have just read, it, it does not tell the story of the resurrection of Christ. Instead, it does something else. It establishes that without the resurrection of Christ, our faith would be empty. 
It would be meaningless. It would be vain. Stated positively, the fact that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day changes everything. When Christ raised from the dead, He demonstrated that He was not just another teacher or a a great moral example to us. Instead, He was and is our conquering Savior. He defeated sin and death when He was raised up to live forevermore. And this He did for us and for all who believe upon Him so that we might have life eternal in His name. In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, we learn a little bit about the situation which made it necessary for Paul the Apostle to write on this subject. Evidently, there were some within the church of Corinth who did not believe that there would be a resurrection at the end of time. Exactly what they thought is not clear from the text, but one thing is certain, they did not believe that believers would be raised bodily in the future. And this is why Paul wrote, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you within the church at Corinth say that there is no resurrection of the dead, generally speaking? And then he reasons this way, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, generally speaking, then does it not follow? Christ Himself has not been raised. And again, evidently there were some within the church of Corinth that believed that Christ was raised from the dead, but they denied that believers would be. Uh, This is a bit of a tangent, but I must say that I do take a bit of comfort in Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. Uh, They do reassure me that it is not unusual to encounter trouble within Christ's church. So it is a strange kind of comfort that I take in Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. Corinth, uh, they do remind us that the church will always struggle against sin and against false doctrine. I don't mean to say that we should be content to live with sin and false doctrine within our midst, but we should not be surprised when we encounter it. And we see here in Paul's letters to Corinth that that church that existed immediately after the resurrection of Christ was founded by the apostles themselves. That church struggled greatly with both sin and false teaching, even to the point that some within it had this view that there would not be a general and bodily resurrection at the end of time. Um, So we should not be surprised. The question is, what will we do in response to it? What will we do in response to the sin and the false teaching, uh, the false doctrine that is found within our midst? We must respond appropriately. And of course, the Scriptures provide us with ample guidance here. In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins to address a doctrinal error within Corinth. Some believe that there would be no resurrection, even of believers at the end of the age, and so Paul is here setting them straight. And I want you to listen again to his reasoning. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, so that was being proclaimed in their midst, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He is drawing attention to their inconsistency. On the one hand, they said, there is no resurrection, generally speaking. And on the other hand, they said, Christ was raised. The two things don't really fit together, do they? And Paul is replying to them, saying, How can that be? If there is no resurrection, then Christ did not raise. But if Christ did not raise, then we also should expect... But if Christ did raise, then we also should expect to rise with Him, if we are united to Him by faith. These two things you see. 
And this is very important to notice. These two things, Christ's resurrection from the dead and ours at the end of time are inextricably linked together. They go hand in hand. And so after establishing this principle, Paul then begins to show how central the resurrection of Christ is to the Christian faith. He does this in two parts in this passage. First of all, in verses 14 through 19, he tells us how things would be if Christ has not been raised. Hypothetically, Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then such and such is true. That is found in verses 14 through 19. But secondly, in verses 20 through 28, he tells us how things really are because Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead. Let us start now in verse 14. And there we learn, first of all, that if Christ is not raised, then our faith is empty and without effect. Read with me in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, Paul says. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is so central to our faith that Paul says, if you take that away, if you take the historical, bodily resurrection of Christ away, then our preaching, meaning the preaching of the apostles and all preaching from that time onward that aligned with the preaching of the apostles, our preaching is empty. It is without content. It is untrue and it is ultimately ineffective. So central is the resurrection of Christ from the dead that that our preaching would be vain if it were not true. I think, brothers and sisters, you should know that there are many in this world who call themselves Christians, who do not believe that Christ was actually raised from the dead, but consider it a myth. Do you know that? There are many who call themselves Christians, who do not believe that Christ was actually raised from the dead, but they consider it a myth. Why they insist upon having the name Christian, I do not know. I cannot understand it. I think it would be far better for them, far more honest of them, if they would admit that they are not Christians at all, but are something else. They might be moral people, they might be ethical people, but they are not Christians. For Paul himself has said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. It is an empty faith that you have, an ineffective faith that you have, if Christ has not, in fact, been raised from the dead. It is not the Christian faith that you have if you deny it. Secondly, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then he and the other apostles would be found misrepresenting God. Look with me at verse 15. If Christ is not raised, then we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. It's not a good idea to misrepresent God. Do I need to say that to you? And Paul, along with the other apostles and the elders that had been appointed in the churches, had been preaching that Christ was the one who raised Christ from the dead. That God was the one who raised Christ from the dead. This was at the core of their message. They had been preaching it. God raised Christ from the dead. And if it is not true that Christ raised from the dead, then these, the apostles and those preaching with them, have been found misrepresenting God. I I want you to listen to how central this idea of God raising Christ from the dead is to the preaching of the early church, to the apostolic preaching of the early church. Listen to Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 22, very early 
in the church age. Men of Israel, hear these words, he said to the Jews who were listening primarily. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But hear this, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And a little bit later in that same sermon, Peter said that Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Listen again to Peter's preaching this time in Solomon's portico. He spoke to the Jews when he said, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So you're beginning to notice a theme, no doubt. What was at the heart of the evangelistic preaching of the early church? The apostles preached about Christ. And in particular, they wanted everyone to know that He rose from the grave. And here, you have heard it twice now. To this, we are witnesses, they said. This is what we are testifying to. We have seen Him. He has risen from the grave. They were witnesses to the life of Christ. But in particular, they were witnesses to His death and His resurrection. They saw Him raised. This testimony that God raised Christ from the dead is found on the lips of the apostles throughout the pages of the book of Acts. And it also appears in Paul's writings. In Romans 10.9, we read these very important words. He says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul here is preaching the gospel throughout the book of Romans. The whole book of Romans preaches the gospel. It begins with law and then gospel. That is true. But when Paul gets to the point, he says, here is what you must do. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You must deny that you are Lord. You must deny that anything else is Lord. Who must you have as Lord of your life in order to be saved? You must have Jesus as Lord. But what must you believe in your heart? You must believe in your heart that in fact God raised Him from the dead. This is how central the historical and bodily resurrection of Christ is to the Christian faith. Without it, without belief in Christ risen by God, we cannot be saved according to of the scriptures. This same message also appears in 1 Corinthians 6:14. It's only about 9 chapters previous to the text that we are studying today. There we read again the words of Paul, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. God raised the Lord and you see how intertwined these concepts are, and because God raised the Lord, he will also raise us up by his power. Uh, This is the teaching of the apostles. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. These two things, Christ's resurrection and ours, are inextricably linked together. And so we see that Paul and the other apostles had testified repeatedly, saying, God raised the Lord. This was at the heart of their message. God raised Christ from the dead. And if it was not true, then these men would be found 
misrepresenting God. Thirdly, we learn that if Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. If Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. Look with me at verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 16, there we read, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, the Apostle says. Paul repeats himself a bit here in these verses just to drive these points home. Again, he states his argument that if the dead are not raised in general, then not even Christ has been raised. And again, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. The Greek word translated as futile here in verse 17 is different than the Greek word translated as vain in verse 14. And the meaning of these two words is very similar. And in verse 14, the emphasis might be upon the ineffectiveness of our faith if Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, then your faith is ineffective. It will have no effect. There's no power in it, you see. Um, but here in verse 17, the emphasis, when he uses the word futile, uh, the Greek word being different from that in verse 14, the, the emphasis might be upon the worthlessness of our faith if Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. It is empty. It is really worthless. Uh, this is all repetition, therefore. But in verse 17, by the end of it, something new is said. And if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. And I do love the way that Calvin explains this verse. Here is what he says. For although Christ by His death atoned for our sins, He atoned for our sins, not by His resurrection, but by His death, by the death on the cross. For although Christ by His death atoned for our sins, that they might no more be imputed to us in the judgment of God, and has crucified our old man, that is, its lusts might no longer reign in us, Romans 6, 6, and 12, and in fine has by death destroyed the power of death and the devil himself. This was all accomplished by the death of Christ, but listen to what Calvin says here. Yet there would have been none of all these things if he had not, by rising again, come off victorious. Hence, if the resurrection is overthrown, the dominion of sin is set up anew. Christ accomplished all of these things. He atoned for our sins. The old man was crucified there on the cross. A payment was made for our sins at the cross of Christ. But if Christ died and remained in the grave, then He would not be victorious. None of these things would have come to fruition. They would have been a futile effort on Christ's behalf. He had to rise again. I think these are beautiful words. But the point is that though it be true that Christ atoned for sins by His death on the cross, none of that would have mattered if He would have remained dead. We would still be in our sins if Christ did not rise. For then we would have not a victorious Savior, but rather a defeated one. Fourthly, we learn that if Christ is not raised, then those who have died in the Lord are hopelessly lost. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 18, If Christ is not raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He has already established that if Christ is not raised, then we who are living are still in our sins. So you see that there, there is now there is no power at all in Christ if He is not raised. Uh, whatever we say about what He did on the cross to pay for sin, to defeat the evil one, to earn an eternal reward, means nothing if we remained in that tomb. Our faith would be in vain and futile if this were true. And, and nothing illustrates this more than to talk about those who have fallen asleep. What does Paul mean by that? He's talking about those who have died. 
If Christ himself did not have victory over death and over the grave, then there is no hope for those who have themselves died and gone into the grave. They simply have perished. They are hopelessly lost if Christ is not risen. If Christ has not risen from the grave, then whatever power He has, whatever benefit He has for us, it is confined to this life only. And so He says, those who have fallen asleep are hopelessly lost. They have perished if Christ has not risen. Fifthly, we learn that if Christ is not risen, then our hope is for this life only. And we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20 If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Two things I must say about this verse. First, do you see that if Christ is not raised, then our hope is for this life only. If Christ did not raise, then He did not defeat death. He does not have the power to do anything for us beyond the grave, for He Himself would have been defeated by it. Perhaps He could be of some use to us in this world as a moral example as a demonstration of God's love, etc. He could be of some benefit to us in this world. But if He did not rise, then He cannot do anything for us beyond the grave, for He Himself would have been consumed by that, just as we will be. He would give us hope, but only in this world. Secondly, Paul puts it most bluntly when he says, If this is true that Christ is not raised then we are of all people most to be pitied. If He is not risen, then of all the peoples of the earth, we are the most pitiful people that there are. Why would Paul say this? Why would he say that Christians, those who have faith in Christ, are pitiful people if Christ is not raised? Does does he not know that following Christ is a great blessing even in this life? Doesn't Paul know that? That following Christ is a great blessing Even in this life, does he not realize how joyous it is to know Christ in this life and to live according to His commandments? He should know that, don't you think? And certainly he does know that, for it was Paul himself who said these words, He counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. For Christ's sake he had suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ. These are the words of Paul in Philippians 3.8. Paul knows, he knew, that in fact knowing Christ is a great treasure. It is a great blessing. Every treasure, every pleasure that the world has to offer to him is like trash. It is like garbage in comparison to knowing Christ in this life. And so he knew very well the blessing of walking with Christ in this world. Every other pleasure and honor seemed as rubbish to him in comparison. But Paul also knew a few other things. He knew something else. And he knew them from experience. He knew that being a Christian in this world, though it is a great blessing and though there is much joy associated with it, it is also very, very difficult. The Christian, for example, is called to resist the temptations of the world, the flesh and and the devil are... Our confession calls this battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil an irreconcilable war. The Christian life is a battle, isn't it? It is a fight. And if Christ is not raised, we are pitiful people because here we are fighting this battle, fighting this war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And for what? Because after all, we, like Christ, will just go into the grave and remain there. If Christ is not raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied, you see. Why? 
Why struggle so hard then against sin? Why struggle so hard against temptation? Why resist the flesh? If Christ is not raised, we are pitiful people for doing so. We ought to just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Also, the Christian should expect to be disciplined by the Lord in this life. Indeed, uh, we take great pleasure in walking with Christ. We, we, we love our God. He is our Father. We are His children. But what does He do with His children? He chastises us because He loves us. Why endure that if we just are going to go into the grave and not be raised with Christ at the end of time? And then lastly, the Christian should expect to suffer a degree of persecution in this world. Paul knew all about that, didn't he? He suffered persecution. For what? He suffered persecution because he insisted upon proclaiming the gospel that God raised Christ from the dead. Why? What a waste. What an absolute waste if it is not true that God raised Christ from the dead. You and I, brothers and sisters, still in this culture uh, do not suffer extreme persecution the way that our brothers and sisters in Christ suffer persecution in other parts of the world. But nevertheless, we do suffer ridicule, do we not? There is a sense in which we are shamed in this world, looked down upon for being Christ followers, you see. What is all of that for if Christ is not raised? It is for nothing. It is vain. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Brothers and sisters, the, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is so central to the Christian faith that if Christ is not risen, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, where we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In fact, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But look at verse 20. There we read these wonderful words. But in fact, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul testified to the fact of Christ's resurrection, actually in the previous passage, uh, when he wrote these words, if you look back up to 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, For I delivered to you, Paul says to the church at Corinth, of first importance what I also received. So here is the matter of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John testify to the fact of Christ's resurrection. The apostles, when they are alive, testify to the fact of Christ's resurrection. They saw Him. They were eyewitnesses. Many others saw Him too. Indeed, Christ appeared 
in his resurrection to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive at the time that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. If Christ is not risen, our faith is futile. This has been established. But in fact, Paul says here in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. And what does this mean for us, therefore? What does this mean for us? We've been told of what it would mean if Christ is, was not raised. But what does it mean for us now that we read, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead? It means that our preaching and our faith is not in vain, but is powerful and effective. It means that we are correctly representing God when we say those words that He raised Christ from the grave. It means that our sins have been atoned for, washed away by the blood of the Lamb, our victorious Savior, if we are united to Him by faith. It means that those who have died in the Lord and are in fact alive with Him in the Spirit as they eagerly await the resurrection of their bodies. They are not hopelessly lost. It means that we not only enjoy Christ in this life, but we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. Far from being of all people most to be pitied, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For we are sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Christ is risen, these things are true of us. We are not of all people most to be pitied, but we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And this is precisely the point that Paul goes on to make in verse 20 when he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and He is, notice, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does it mean that Christ is the firstfruits? It means that He is the first of many. What happened to Him when He was raised from the grave will also happen to us if we are in Him. Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Because Christ is risen, we know for sure that we too will be raised. You see, Christ did not raise from the grave for Himself only, but so that He might bring many sons to glory, as Hebrews 2.10 so beautifully reveals. Christ was not merely raised... As an individual, but he was raised as the first fruits, the first of many to rise unto eternal life. Paul then explains why Christ is the first fruits in verse 22. Christ is the first fruits, he has said it, but now he explains why Christ is the first fruits. In verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ is the first fruits because Christ died and was buried and rose again as a federal head or as a representative of others, just as Adam was. Remember that Adam lived as a representative of others. His obedience would have meant life for others. His, his disobedience meant death for others. And who did Adam represent? Who did he stand as a representative for? You should know this well by now. He represented all who would descend from him according to the flesh. To be born into this world is to be born in who? It is to be born in Adam. And to be in Adam is to be born dead in trespasses and sins. 
Christ also lived. This is the clear and plain teaching of Holy Scripture. Christ also lived and died and rose again as a representative for others. And who did Christ represent in His life? Death, burial, and resurrection. Who did He represent? He stood in the place of all who were given to Him by the Father from all eternity. Just read John 17. These are all who have have ever and ever will place their faith in Jesus the Christ. To be in Christ, notice that is the thing that changes everything. To be in Christ is to have life everlasting. In Adam, all die. To be in Adam means death. But in Christ, to be united to Him by faith, in Christ shall all be made alive, is what Paul is teaching here. But notice that there is an order to things. That is what Paul says in verse 23. There is an order to things, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. No one has come to enjoy their resurrection body yet, except Christ. No one has come to enjoy their resurrection body yet, except Christ. I can only think of two possible exceptions, and that is Enoch and Elijah. But more on that another time. All who have died, having placed their faith in Christ, either before or after His first coming, they do indeed live in the presence of God, but they live in God's presence in the Spirit, while their bodies lie where? They are still in the grave. Christ, though, was raised bodily. He was the first fruits, that is, He was the first of many who would be brought to glory in and through Him. Then, here is the order of things, at His coming, that is to say at His second coming, those who belong to Christ will also be raised. There is an order to things here. And in verse 24 we read these words, Then comes the end, when He, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. At the end of time, the dead in Christ will be raised bodily. At the end of time, the kingdom of Christ will be delivered to God the Father, as if Christ will come and present it to Him as a gift. By the way, this is what Adam was to do in the garden. Keep this in mind. He was to labor, to promote, and to advance God's kingdom as a faithful servant of God to the glory and honor of God. That was Adam's task. When Adam... Where Adam failed, Christ has succeeded. This is the point that Paul makes in this epistle and in Romans too. Christ on the last day will deliver the kingdom of which He is Lord to God the Father. He will present it to God the Father as a kind of gift. Verse 25 says, For He, Christ, must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. Again, there is a process to the establishment of this kingdom of God. Christ is ruling and reigning now. Amen? He is. His rule is supreme and it is absolute. But every enemy of His will be progressively brought under His feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is something that we still must experience. It is the way that we pass from this life into the next. 
If we are in Christ, we will pass from life to life. We are alive in Christ Jesus, according to the Spirit, and we'll be alive in the presence of God. If we are in Christ, we will pass from life to life. Those not in Christ will pass from death to death. They are dead in their transgressions and sins, and they will pass into death for all eternity. See 2 Corinthians 2.16. At the end of time, death itself, though, will be destroyed by Christ for all those who are in Him. This is why the Christian can say these words, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why can we say this? Why can we say that death, though it is always difficult, it no longer has its bite? How can that be? It is because Christ has defeated death by His resurrection, and at the end of time, death will be ultimately and fully and finally destroyed for all who are in Christ Jesus. What, what is the meaning of this? Paul is saying that all things have been made subject to Christ. Let me back up here. Verse 27. In verse 27, Paul cites Psalm 8 when he says, for God has put all things in subjection under His, that is Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. It's difficult to read, isn't it? It's difficult to comprehend what Paul is saying. But, but here's the meaning. It really is not complicated. Paul is saying that all things have been made subject to Christ. He is Lord over all things. He who was humbled and made low has been highly exalted, and He has the name given to Him above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess. Right? That is the position that Christ has because of His life, death, burial, and resurrection, His ascension to the Father's right hand. Okay? So, so that is true of Christ. But there is one exception, one obvious exception, one thing, one person who is not in subjection to Christ. And who is that? It is God the Father. God has not and will not be made subject to Christ. God is the one exception, for He is the one who put all things in subjection under Christ, so that God may be all in all. And so do you see, therefore, that when Christ was raised from the dead, it was for our good and it was to God's glory. It was for our good because the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection are inextricably linked together. He rose from the grave as the first fruits. It is a guarantee that we too will raise from the grave at the end of time. We have our hope placed in Him. But also it was to God's glory. There is this sense in which Christ at the very end of time will take that kingdom firmly established by Him and He will present it to God the Father. And He will say, here it is. Adam should have done this in the garden. He should have kept that garden. He should expand that temple. He should have filled the earth with your kingdom, God, and presented it to you as your servant. He did not do that. But here, God, I have the second Adam, Christ Jesus our Lord. I have established your kingdom. I have redeemed a people for you from every tongue, tongue tribe, and nation. And here they are, so that God is all in all, so that God receives the glory. It was for God's glory because Christ is establishing God's kingdom, not His own. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God are one and the same. The kingdoms of Christ will advance in this world until it is fully established, and all things will be made subject to Christ. And at, the, and at that time, Christ will deliver the kingdom to God, and to destroy every rule and every authority and every power, even death itself. 
all for the glory of our great God and King. This is a beautiful passage, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Do you see how central and important the resurrection of Christ is to the Christian faith? How someone could deny it and still call themselves Christian? I do not know. And yet there are many who do so. And so tell me, friends, does it matter whether or not Christ was in fact raised from the dead? I hope you would say, yes, it does. He is risen, and we together say, he was risen indeed. And do you believe that He has been raised? Have you done what Paul says we must do if we are to be saved from our sins? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, by the way, I think we are to do this through the waters of baptism. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, Paul says. Have you done that? And I must call you to do it. I must urge you to confess your sins to God, to look to Christ as your only hope for the forgiveness of sins, and for life everlasting. You must have Him as Lord. You must have Him as King. And you must believe in this central thing, that Jesus was in fact and is the Christ, and that He died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And if you have believed upon Christ, are you aware of how rich you are in Him, having been united to Him by faith? We deserved God's wrath because of our sin, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where you are seated now. Today you're seated here in this place bodily. But where are you in fact if you are in Christ Jesus? According to the Spirit, you are seated even now in the heavenly places, you are already there because of your union with Christ, brought about by the instrument of faith. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If you have believed upon Christ, are you aware of how rich you, rich you are in Him? We struggle in many ways in this world, don't we? Sometimes we suffer Sometimes life feels like such a burden and such a grind and how important it is for us to set our eyes upon Jesus and to be reminded no matter how poor we are in this world, no matter how much we suffer, in Christ we are rich. His, the riches that we have in Christ Jesus are immeasurable. And we must set our minds upon these things. Friends, I ask you also, are you eager to grow in your knowledge of Christ Jesus? Are you eager to grow in your knowledge of Christ Jesus? I hope so. If in fact the riches we have in Him are immeasurable, if the mystery is so great, then day after day, week by week, month by month, year by year, until the Lord calls us home, we ought to be growing in Christ Jesus our Lord, pursuing Him with all that is in us. And lastly, are you eager to share that knowledge with others? To do what God has called us to do, that is to make disciples of all nations, to proclaim Christ crucified and risen, to say, this Jesus, He lived for us kept God's law on our behalf. He died for us. He atoned for our sins. He appeased the wrath of God. He took the place of sinners as He hung on that tree. And God raised Him from the dead so that we might have hope not only in this life but for the life to come. Are you prepared to proclaim that message to those who ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you? Brothers and sisters, it is good that we have given special attention to the resurrection of Christ today. Indeed, each Lord's Day we gather to give worship to God through Christ who was raised on the first day of the week. But today, in a special way, we again gather to say, He is risen, He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your Word which is so rich. We thank You for Christ risen on our behalf that He is a firstfruits. We look to Him 
And we see what we can expect if we have faith in Christ, having been united to Him by faith. We know that we were born into this world in Adam. But we thank you, God, that you have called us to place our faith in, in Christ and, so by, and thereby be united to Him. God, we thank you for your grace and mercy. You have been so good to us, Lord. May we day by day stand in awe of all that you have accomplished for us. And I pray for those who do not yet know Christ, who are still trusting in their own good works, their own merits, their own goodness. Uh, Lord, I pray that your law would break that in them, that they would come to see that they are in fact sinners. God, that is a hard pill for us to swallow, but it is true. And may we also see that you have provided a remedy. Uh, You have provided a Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. May all who are here listening to these words even now be found in Him at the end of time and enter into Your kingdom, God, for all eternity, to Your glory, honor, and praise. It's in Christ's name we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.